Welcome to the Wellbeing and Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with a leadership coach and a man who has had a 20-year military career where he traveled as an operations and vice presidential communications officer, leading over 500 White House missions. Following the tragedies of September 11, 2001, Darrell was selected as one of five key leaders from 30 senior managers to direct emergency action communication for the vice president of the United States to include duties as an Air Force Two command representative. In addition to being a master certified life coach, he's a certified facilitator. He trains senior managers at the White House Communications Agency Training Academy to travel as vice presidential team leads, serving as a primary contact for the traveling White House staff, while simultaneously training mid-level managers to travel as presidential operation team leads. He received numerous professional awards to include a presidential service badge, Lacey B. Ivory Service Award, Roy Wilkins Renowned Service Award, the National Louis University Reach Award, and Australia University Outstanding Alumni Award for his dedicated leadership in the Community and Department of Defence. Daryl holds a Bachelor of Science and Management from National Louis University and an MBA from Stryer University. What has this man not done? Where does he ever get time? He's also a member of the White House Communications Agency Hall of Fame. And today I'll be chatting with Daryl about his background. He'll give an insight of what his career was like and what it takes to work in a federal government agency. A very good morning to you, Daryl. How are you doing today? Hey, good morning, David. All is well here in the United States. Brilliant. So my first question is always the same question. Don't ask me why. Where are you right now on planet Earth? I know you said United States, but where are you right now? So right now I am in, uh, I would say uh, near Fort Meade, Maryland, which is between Baltimore and Annapolis, Maryland. Oh, wow. Okay. Is, is, that, a, is that an area specific to um, uh, army bases or military bases? It is. It is. Oh, okay. Interesting. We'll find out more later on. So the other question I have to ask you is what is the weather like? I know it's early morning where you are. It's one o'clock in Ireland. So I think it's eight o'clock in, in the States at the moment where you are. So how's the yes. weather? Is it wintry? It is wintry, um, about 29 degrees today. So it snowed the other day. So no more snow, but uh, the residuals are still there and um, definitely chilly this morning. And that's Fahrenheit, is it? 29 Fahrenheit? Uh, yes. Oh dear. Okay. We, we as you know, we, we go in Celsius over here. That's, right. that's pretty. That's pretty chilly. Okay. Fair enough. Okay. Okay. So generally, I, I've chatted about your your uh, giving into the introduction about your background. So can you tell our listeners a little bit more about your uh, your career and your background before we get really into it? I've uh, just been very fortunate, David. Uh, I grew up in an area in the United States called uh, Compton, California. Uh, at the time that I was growing up there, it's about the fourth most dangerous city in the United States. Wow. And um, it was definitely um, um, something different, right? You had a lot of gang activity back then, a lot of drugs, um, and you're just trying to make it, you know? And even though there was still a lot of positivity in the city, uh, you definitely had a lot of challenges as well. So uh, for me growing up there, uh, I definitely wouldn't change anything because it taught me a lot about mental toughness. Right and definitely uh, gave me the early values that I needed, uh, not just to make it in that environment, but it also set the foundation for me moving forward. Um, I ended up joining the United States military and served in the army for um, a career, about 20 years, which was fantastic. 
uh, learned a lot of leadership skills and made a lot of great friends. And part of those assignments I did, they call a special assignment, uh, where I was assigned to the White House Communications Agency. And we'll talk a bit more about that later. And then from there, I ended up retiring, uh, worked for an organization and taught uh, leadership um, at a uh, leadership academy because that's always near and dear to my heart. And then from there, after about five years, I worked back for the federal government where I've been there for about 11 years now. So pretty impressive. So you've you've been around the houses, so to speak. Can I ask then, you mentioned there Compton in California because as an Irishman growing up, I think there was some mm -hmm. of the, the best rap artists were from yes. Compton. And then there was one, I think it was NWA, was it no, Naughty by Nature? Yes. yes, yes, no, the first one, yes. The first one, and I have to say, I, I loved, I loved all the rap, and always remember <laughs> the association with Compton in a lot yes. of the lyrics. So yeah, so it's it's a reminiscent time. But is it exactly, is it like that? I know you mentioned there, it's, it's, it's I mean, the, what the music was telling us, or what the rap artists were, were, were kind of portray, it was it, was it like that? really was. Um, if people uh, want to kind of get an idea of what it was like, uh, definitely two movies I would recommend, not with kids, obviously. Um, <laughs> and that is the, the movie Boys in the Hood and Straight Out of Compton. Okay. Um, both of those uh, definitely reflect the time that I grew up. And then Straight Out of Compton kind of reflected the timeline when my brothers and sisters grew up and I had just joined the military. Uh, so definitely the music uh, represented the culture and did did you fear i mean because you've done amazing with your life i mean did you fear for your life growing up in compton i mean in terms of would you go to school would there always be that risk of something happening i mean has things changed since then um they have changed since then um but definitely growing up back then there were some times where you definitely um felt the fear but what you'll find out is when you grow up in any type of inner city um, after a while, you know, there's this, um, I don't know what you want to call it, but this street knowledge that kind of kicks in and um, you just kind of know your surroundings. You pay closer attention, you know, when to go to certain places and when not to. And, you know, it just becomes just a part of that survival instinct. Um, funny you mentioned uh, when I was growing up at Compton High, right, that was definitely, you know, a high school that a lot of people did not like to um, play us in sports because of the rowdiness um, right. <laughs> of our um, uh, fan support, right? And I just remember, man, my junior year, our principal was like, man, we just have too much violence going on. We got to cut this down. And he came up with an idea, talking about thinking outside the box. This is like 1983. And um, he decided to have uh, play music at lunchtime, right? Oh, and yeah. br brought it, brought in a DJ, which happened to be a <laughs> friend of mine, and basically told the kids as long as um, the violence is um, at a um, ceasefire, right, the DJ can keep coming. But as soon as the violence comes back, he's going to take away the music. And it just seemed like David that all the gangsters kind of was had like a little truce and said, hey, we like this. Let's not mess this up. Right. And I just remember uh, my junior year, man, we just you know had a DJ playing every, I don't know if it was every week, but definitely um, almost every other week. And it was just a lot of peace during that time. And it was just pretty cool. 
It's amazing because I mean, it, it, you're an inspiration that you've come from that background to what you've done in your career, and it's an inspiration for other people listening to this story. But was 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 that like more of a drive for you to do what you did? It was because I didn't know what I wanted to do growing up there. I just knew that there was another world outside of this. I wanted to be a part of it. I wanted to represent, you know, my neighborhood and, you know, just kind of let people know that, you know, even though you're may come from surroundings uh, that you didn't choose, it does not mean that you cannot uh, still strive for excellence and still, you know, maximize your potential. Yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. It really, really is. So let's move on then. Did you always want to work for federal government agencies? And what, what do we kind of categorize as federal government agencies? So I never wanted to work for the federal government. Uh, even when I joined the military, I didn't even put the association with that. Uh, and basically federal government agencies are, are basically organizations that support uh, kind of like the United States and the people of the United States in different ways. So it's not private industry. Uh, that's kind of the best way to look at it. And even like the United States military, I mean, that is considered a federal agency. But I think one of the things that got me about the military, which I liked was when I talked to the recruiter, you know, he mentioned something about, you know, being a part of something that's bigger than yourself. And I think that's one of the things that drive a lot of people to work for the government. It's not just the stability, but you know, you work for you know operations um, and institutions that are trying to make a difference in the lives of others. So, can examples of them be like the likes of the FBI, the Secret Service? Is that is that a specific? Would they be under the umbrella of federal government agencies? Um, yes, they can be under the umbrella, and also places such as you know the Department of Health right? Department of Agriculture, right? Any yeah. of those organizations that are trying to, you know, provide a support or a service, you know, uh, for the Americans. So generally, there's a broad scope then. So if somebody has an interest, there's different areas they can actually work in, which leads me on then to the next question. So what qualifications then would you need for an entry level job uh, within the federal government? Um, basically, there's a lot of different uh, requirements based on the career field that you go into. But for the most part, some of the standards are uh, basically you meet the requirements uh, for the particular job announcement. Uh, you do not have to have a college degree, but if you have a college degree, it definitely um, increases your chances. Um, because like I said, you can get an entry job without a good degree, but obviously if you have a degree, then you have more opportunities and more chances. And then is it pretty much as you go through your high school, um, I think it's it's what we call it over here. We call it, uh, we don't call it high school over here. What do we call it? Leaving cert or? Anyway, it's, okay. it's similar to the high school in, in, in the States um, okay. in teenage years. So is it important then to have continuously good grades? Um, I know you mentioned here with regards to, you know, not 100% necessary to have a college uh, qualification or a degree, but would they monitor that with regards to, oh, okay, this, this kid has been quite high performance all the way through high school. Um, is that an attractive thing for somebody wanting to employ? into the federal government? Absolutely. Um, always tell students, I was a motivational speaker. Um, 
in this area. And I always tell the kids that, you know, your performance will always um, dictate where you're going in life. So obviously the first time you get to perform is at home, right? So you got to get the home training, master that. But the other place you get to perform well is in school. And I always tell people school is basically, you know, a backdrop to life, right? You got to learn how to get along with others. You got to learn how to follow instructions. Then you have to excel. And if you're not doing that well, then it's up to you to get the help that you need. So I, I, you know, I always give them the example that, you know, if I have to hire, you know, two of you and everything is equal, then I automatically start looking for disqualifiers. And a disqualifier could be a GPA, grade point average, right? If somebody averaged a 4.0 grade point average in school and somebody had a 3.0, right? I, I would yeah. use that as, okay, I think I will hire this person because for whatever reason, uh, maybe they study harder, uh, maybe they put in extra work, they grasp information a little quicker, you know, whatever it is, you know, those are the things that kind of dictate hiring processes. So I tell them whether it's fair or not fair, the best thing to do is try to master whatever it is that you want to do. And what about then? So if it's just an example, they, they don't have a, a high high GPA. Um, can they boost by doing like extracurricular activities, maybe sports, they're very good at sports or they do volunteering. Would that be a possibility to kind of make them different from the crowd? It definitely can, because there's other areas that you look at um, as it comes to being like a well-rounded person. Because like I also tell the kids, you know, not everybody, right, is going to be a 4.0 student. I wasn't a 4.0 student. But like you just said, I tried to excel in other areas to show that I was well-rounded. Because like you said, being a part of sports, being a part of clubs, right, those things can lend itself to, hey, this person is good working with teams. And I told them a lot of things in the world now, I mean, there's still a lot of jobs where you're individually maybe in a lab, but for the most part, there are a lot of jobs where you work with teams. And if you can find, show yourself to be a great team player, um, that definitely makes you marketable. Can I ask you then, Daryl, just with regards, especially in Europe or maybe parts of Asia, where or the Middle East, where they don't have GPA, what is GPA? I mean, are we talking about a lot of subjects that you do, and then there's an average score. Is that how it works? Yes, exactly. It's so basically a grade point average. And a lot of things are kind of lend itself toward that um, here in the United States when it comes to education. And how many subjects do you have to do to obtain uh, a decent score? I mean, do, is there a minimum mental subject like English, maths, French, and so on, or history? So, so it's not a minimum. Uh, because all the curriculum is pretty much um, same. It just comes down to whatever those subjects you took, what was your um, score when it came to graduating, uh, which is basically an accumulative of all the tests and assignments that you've taken. Right. Okay. Very interesting. So let's move on then to your first job. What was the first job you ever had and what's oh. important? So for me, the first job I ever had when I joined the military, um, I went in as a human resources specialist. However, when I was assigned overseas, um, they had this thing, David, where it says other duties as assigned. <laughs> and for me, that meant working in a post office. 
or a postal organization. And in the back of my mind, if I'm going to this place, I'm like, okay, I can work in a post office. I can sell some stamps. But <laughs> no, 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 no. That was not the case, David. I right. ended up working in a, the, they call it the warehouse part of the post office where all the mail comes in, all oh, the boxes. <laughs> oh, yes. And I was working on, it was two shifts. One of them was five in the morning to 12 in the afternoon. And the other shift was one in the afternoon to eight o'clock in the evening. And that was the shift that I was on. So imagine I'm getting to this place. Morale is low. Motivation is low. And I'm like, man, if I'm going to be here for the next, I don't know, three or four years, I need to make the best of it. So I just came there with the attitude where I tried to turn the mundane, monotonous task into games. Right. And it was so yep. funny, David, because I remember some of the older people working there like, we're trying to make this fun. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what's wrong with fun? And it was like, well, just stop it. So then I started, you know, pitching letters and we're both like say sitting next to each other pitching letters and it's like man i think i can probably pitch all these way faster <laughs> than you and then competition starts kicking in because nobody wants a youngster to show them up so they started you know trying to keep me from winning in different things and i would just do that throughout the warehouse whether it was offloading a truck pitching letters you know whatever the case if it was something i can make it a competition i would do it Part of it was self-motivation for me, but then I found something out after doing that for a while that it also started motivating the people around me and that they saw that the environment does not have to dictate um, my attitude. Yes. And that was one of the things I learned at my first job. And I believe that that helped me with my future because it was like any job that I get after this, I have a pretty good background now how I want to go into that job. And that's with a positive attitude. And where were you stationed doing this post office job? Um, it was in Germany. Oh, wow. In, in Germany. And was it cold? Assignments. Um, it was cold during the wintertime, but definitely uh, they had all four seasons. Although um, it was interesting in Germany at that time because you definitely could get some cold weather in the middle of the summer, which I was not used to. So that was a definitely a new environment for me to experience. I, I'm going to be, I'm going to sidetrack a little bit. So I'm look at your website right now, which is allianceseminars.org. And we're mm -hmm. going to talk about White House, White House communications uh, in a little bit. So I have, I can see some wonderful photographs in front of me. You with president uh, Clinton and mm -hmm. president Bush. And um, looking at them, what was that like to meet them? Oh, it was amazing. I mean, first of all, you know, it's rare that anybody would meet, right, their, you know, head of state, right, or premier or a king or queen or any of those type of people in those environments. But to, you know, to be able to join the military, not knowing what that organization was even like, and then find yourself a part of the best of the best. Um, every, every day literally was amazing because you're kind of living out a part of history and to find yourself there knowing that you know, not everyone would get that opportunity. Uh, it was very special. And were, are you, I'm looking at the photographs here again, are you in the Oval Office? Um, at that time, yes. Wow. Okay. That's, that's pretty cool. What's the Oval Office like? Or can you tell? Can you say what it's like? Is it like pretty Pretty much pretty, what you see on TV. I mean, right. it's kind of just set up as, you know, a regular working office. This happens to be the working office of the head of state for the, for the United States. 
And do they, I'm always interested in this, and maybe the listeners are as well, do, do they change the decor depending on the president that comes in? So, for example, um, uh, President Biden at the moment, would he come in and say, look, I don't like the curtains. Let's get rid of them. I want new curtains. Does that work? Or is it just, it just, it is what it is. And it's been there for so many years and we don't touch it because it's historical. (laughs) I believe that it's a little bit of both, right? There are some things that they may change a little bit, but for the most part, they do leave a lot of it because one of the things that it's known for is it's the office of the people. Right. Right. So, you know, I know, I don't know if they do it now, but I know at one time, you know, they used to do tours. And, you know, if the president was out of uh, the country and you happen to do a tour that week, right, you can get a view. You couldn't go inside, but you can get a view of the Oval Office. Right. So I think in that regard, they don't change it too much uh, because of the history part of it. And are the presidents, uh, president obviously don't have to compare them here, but are they quite funny? And do they make you feel kind of calm and relaxed when you meet them? Because I, I probably find it quite intimidating meeting uh, the world's most powerful person <laughs> oh yes it definitely can be intimidating but um they all have a, uh, a part of them that you know sometimes the public doesn't see and we were fortunate um in our environment to be able to see a little bit more of that funny part and that um, personal part yeah it's amazing. and they tall my final question on this who's the tallest is it president clinton or president bush man uh both of them actually were um very tall, but I believe um, Clinton was a little bit taller. Um, like I said, I'm sure the records will show otherwise, but to me, it just seemed like President Clinton seemed a little bit taller. One more question again. I know I'm jumping jumping from our, our, our plan questions, but mm-hmm. did you ever get a shot or see Air Force One? Did you ever get a go on it? I did. You did? Um, oh, wow. <laughs> I was able to do a tour. Uh, did not fly on it, but definitely did a tour of it. And then I was fortunate that um, we have a lot of different support and their support for the vice president as well. So part of the end of my career, I was able to support um, Vice President Cheney and actually flew on Air Force Two uh, for a couple of years. So even though it's not as big as Air Force One, it was still a, um exciting experience. Yeah, geez, that's so cool. Amazing, amazing life and career you've had okay so that's my questions out of the way that i've, I've sidetracked but anyway no problem so, <laughs> it's just so interesting um so what about then the white white house communication agency what what is that um basically um it's just an organization that provides um information technology support to president vice president uh, Secret Service, White House staff, and others as directed, and basically allows uh, those leaders, uh, particularly the president, to talk anywhere to anyone at any time. Right. So the technology has to be good, is it? Is this what we're dealing with? Yes. Right. And is the federal government jobs, is that part of that umbrella as well, to work within the uh, agency? Yes, it would um, be categorized as, um, actually, it's interesting because it's actually a military special assignment, so it actually falls underneath the Department of Defense, which is another agency. Right, okay. So confusing because so many agencies, but still fascinating. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, So what about then, what was the most challenging travel mission you ever had and why? So when you're supporting the president, um, 
every trip, every mission is, is, is different, right? Nothing is always the same, the particulars, the team, and the challenges. So I would always tell anybody, my biggest challenging trip was definitely when President Clinton um, celebrated the 50th anniversary of D-Day in Normandy, France. Okay. And that was such a challenging trip. One, because he was on the ground for um, a couple of days. So each event, right, it's already something special. And then when you start adding days to it or spending the night, uh, it makes it even more challenging. So it was just the fact that we had so many moving pieces. And at that time, I traveled as kind of like an operations lead. So there's a communication officer that's in charge of the whole team. Right. And then there's an operations lead that kind of takes care of all the logistics, right? And uh, just being able to capture all the people. I mean, working with the team leads, of course, but you know, you still have that role of making sure everybody gets to where they need to get to. All the vehicles are set up and uh, you set up contingency plans and things of that nature. And it was, I mean, it was just one of those trips where it just took so much out of you, but yet it was so rewarding because again, you're part of history. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fascinating. I mean, you mentioned the vehicles there. I mean, we do see them on TV. I think the nickname of the presidential vehicle is called the beast. I don't know if I'm right or wrong there. Um, but I think that's what the media are calling it. Uh, so generally you have to make sure that all of these support vehicles are, are where they should be. And is that how it works? Well, only the vehicles that we deal with, like, you know, somebody else does that part with him, but within ourselves, like it's so funny when people see on TV, the president showing up, they don't see that, you know, prior to that, right, yeah. you have some outstanding joint service military men and women that are great at what they do and what they specialize in. So they're setting up all of the IT equipment to allow that particular trip to take place. So the vehicles that I was referring to were the vehicles that we use to get that equipment right to those different locations right. uh, to make sure that everything works the way it needs to and people can communicate accordingly. And again, some of those, I mean, it's a lot of equipment. So it takes a lot of vehicles, right? And a lot of coordination, one, to get the equipment there and set it up. And then two, to, um, get it torn down and then sometimes you may have to leapfrog to different events to make sure that we can uh, recover everything in a timely manner and how often in advance or how how much time in advance uh, Darrell, would you have to prepare for say these events i mean you're talking is it is like maybe is a last minute event a nightmare because the preparation involved is might be high more high pressure that is exactly correct. Uh, normally, you know, if there's big events throughout the year, uh, you know, those things are kind of out there, but uh, there are more times where, uh, you know, you may get noticed uh, not as much leeway time. And then the ones that you talked about, those we call down and dirty trips, Yeah, uh, that's that's when you make your money, right? right? Because <laughs> uh, the timeline is out the window, Right, he's going to be there at a certain time, and you still have to make sure everything is working. And that was definitely one of those things that I took pride in. Whenever I had, they call it down and dirty trip. Uh, you dread it at first because you don't know what you're getting into, but once you're in the middle of it, you have so much pride because you know 
that you're going to lead these great team of men and women that's going to be a part of history and make something happen in the amount of time um, that most people would not be able to do. And that just gives you a special pride. Uh, and what about then? I mean, you mentioned earlier, like it's, it's, you know, it can be quite challenging. So what about how did you support a mission where failure, you know, can be seen all over the world? Man, you have to support it very carefully, right? right. <laughs> because, uh, like you said, you know, we're out there, the media sees what's going on. And that was one of the things that I took pride in as um, being a lead is you work with the people and you realize that you can't do anything without the team. So one thing I learned early on was I wanted to make sure that I always motivated my team, always knew what my team was dealing with knowing their um, strengths and maybe some of the things that they may need to work on and just helping them to be the best that they could for that week or those two weeks. Um, and then doing a lot of what we call contingency training, right? Like if you're the radio lead, David, and you're setting up things, all right, we're talking different scenarios. Hey, David, what would happen if this um, goes out? Yeah. Right? What's our backup to that? Okay, good. And what if over here happens? How would we take this over there? And being able to talk out those scenarios allows those leaders to be able to, in the back of their mind, plus trusting their training, uh, to be able to adjust on the fly uh, should something go awry. I mean, it's, it seems quite stressful and quite tense at times. I mean, what about them with regards to family? family life and friends i mean did you because you're traveling quite a lot um, and when you do these kind of uh, setups in different countries i mean is it radio silence for maybe a few weeks that you can't contact them because of certain protocols or or security i mean how then from the family side of it how does that work and especially for you as well because although you're away um you're still dealing with with your family if you can understand me Right. So depending on the trip, like you said, you know, there are some of those trips where you just say, hey, I'm about to leave. Can't tell you where I'm going, but, you know, I'll get back with you. And then there are some trips where it was like, OK, it's like, hey, you know, once the, 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 the security piece of it is once the media releases it, then it's OK to talk about it. Right. Yeah. So, you know, so when you're in those type of places and you say, yep, you know, we're over here in Spain. Right. Madrid. Um, that part is good. But I can tell you that being away from family, um, that is definitely one of the most difficult things for especially anybody that serves in the foreign government or definitely serves in the military, particularly because a lot of times when you're away from family, it's not planned times. Um, so you're missing, right, significant events. Right. Right. Uh, birth of children, anniversaries, birthdays, um, birth of the children. A lot of times you can put in you know, vacation time and be there for that. But then you know, shortly after that, depending on this, what's going on, and you have to get right back into the swing of things. So definitely traveling a lot. Uh, that is probably one of the biggest things that uh, stands in the way of people doing this type of job for a long period of time. Is it best then, before you get into this type of organization, to and you meet somebody and you you need to? Is it best to explain to them, look, this is my job, I will be away a lot. You know, you need to understand, because you know when when you hear a lot of these stories where uh, you know people get involved with 
individuals that are working in these organizations or whether it be in aviation or, or industries that are away a lot and they get married or they they hook up with somebody in terms of in a relationship and then after that mm-hmm. then a couple of years later um they get upset or one side get upset because they're not seeing the other person i mean is it good then to have a bit of a conversation before you meet somebody or is that a bit too over the top and drastic no i think depending on where you see the relationship going um i think it's very important to have that discussion because again whether you're in the military or again as you mentioned airline pilots right you know if the relationship is going somewhere and you're starting to have feelings for both parties and it's getting a little bit deeper than friendship you definitely have to have that discussion because they have to understand that you know if you're going to be a part of my world this is a part of it right and as of right now my career is a little bit more important than relationships so if you're okay with that, that's fine. But if not, I totally understand. Um, no hard feelings because not everyone can support, right, a person that has a traveling type of mission. Yeah. However, I would say that for those people that have those discussions and the um, person that they're dating says, you know what? You know, my mother or my father had that type of job. So I'm used to that. I know what it takes. Or they may have someone that never the part of it, but yet they're willing to make the sacrifices. And they have an understanding and they're independent. Um, those relationships tend to be some of the best because they've already building a mechanism of sacrifice um, that's going to be required. And if you can get through that type of phase, then you realize that anything after that is going to be a piece of cake. Great, great advice. And, and you know, it's, it's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm from an aviation background myself and I can relate mm-hmm. to that because, you know, you are, well, me personally, I was away quite a lot and uh, you do need to have an understanding partner or wife or, or husband or whoever. So it's, uh, yes. you know, it's, it's a good, it's a good suggestion. One quick question. Vacation. Did you ever have a time where you had planned a vacation? You were all set to go and then it had to be canceled because of, your work. Absolutely. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> luckily, it wasn't the type of vacation where uh, money was spent, right? Which is maybe just a local one. Yeah. And it, and that because most of the time, that's just what's so good about these type of jobs. Again, if you put in your vacation time, because uh, they know that everybody needs to wind down in type of environments like this. And they encourage it as well. It's like, hey, make sure you put in your your leave so we can not mess with you during this time. But there were, uh, after a few times, we had local vacation. And then they would call and say, hey, normally we wouldn't call you. We know you're on leave next week, but everybody else is out because of a certain amount of trips came up that were unexpected. And then in those situations, right, I would talk to my wife and, you know, say, hey, uh, this came up. I know we're supposed to go. Uh, this week, is there any way we can push it back? And if we can push it back, you know, we did it. I yeah. would do the trip and then I would come back. Um, because again, and when it all comes down to it, you know, you're a public servant. And part of being a public servant, especially in the military, is, you know, duty, honor, country. And that's kind of goes with that particular job. So a lot of flexibility needed. Yes, much right. flexibility. I want to say hello to your wife, uh, Veronica. Hi, Veronica. Just so we move on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll definitely let her know. <laughs> so what do you suggest then to anyone wanting to work? I mean, we've kind of put 
some positives on it because you've had a, such a fabulous career, but there's kind of a little bit of challenges because you need to be aware that you might be away from family, friends, yes. especially for important events. So what would you suggest to anyone wanting to work then that, you know, they're in the high operations tempo environment? What, what, what do they need? So one of the first things that I would share with anyone is do your research, right? You need yeah. to understand what you're getting into. Um, because every job comes with a certain amount of risk, a certain amount of challenges. But you have to ask yourself, am I willing right, to put myself in this situation? And then the second thing I always tell anybody, especially when I'm talking to kids, is uh, it's very important to find a mentor. right? If you know that you want to get into the aviation industry and you, there's no one in your family that's a part of that, still reach out and find someone that's already doing that particular career, uh, find a way to find an internship, uh, things of that nature, because having a mentor can dramatically increase um, the learning period, as well as you get to learn firsthand, right, some tips of the trade that have allowed them to, one, manage a successful career, and also have proper balance within their families. Yeah, that's, that's great advice. I think I, I can fully support that. A mentor and internship is uh, before you either invest money into something or invest your time into it, it's good to have um, an insight before you, you jump in uh, with both feet rather than regretting it. <laughs> that's that's yeah. one of the biggest, the biggest issues. So what about them? What's your favorite part of the job? The least favorite part? Or do you have any? Well, I would say the least favorite part uh, is definitely the friendships that you make. And then after that, knowing that, you know, those people have to leave because, you know, no type of assignments, nobody stays there forever. So just to build these friendships that are, I mean, they're, you're more, you find out you're more than friends. You're almost like these people are like your brothers and your sisters. Yes. Right. So when their time to leave comes, uh, it's definitely disheartening because you built up so much, you shared so much, right? You've done things together, you brought families together, right? You were each yes. other's house for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and you know, like, this is that last time that you're going to come together. So those are definitely the least favorite parts because, you know, you just met somebody that's now a part of your, your extended family is what we call them. Yes. Um, and definitely my favorite part without a doubt, is like you were saying, going to those short notice trips and having a team that's, you know, you always have doubt, like, okay, how are we going to do this? Uh, what is it going to look like when we get there? And to be able to jump into those environments, uh, not really knowing what the game plan is, and you're kind of making it up on the fly. And to be able to, you know, when you see Air Force One or Air Force Two depart, and you realize, holy smokes, I can't believe we pulled this off. Um, yes. That is a feeling that uh, is hard to explain because of all the sweat and, oh, that you put into it um, in your mind. You know, people don't realize, like you said, it's a stressful time. So in the midst of you setting this up, it's not like the equipment um, works the first time all the time right yeah. um, that's one <laughs> thing about technology right it always <laughs> will test your patience so i mean i remember a couple of times where 
you know, the principal, whether it's the president or vice president, uh, is getting ready to come and you're at the airport and you're trying to set up certain things and it's just not working the way that you plan it. And you're like, okay, what's option one? What's option two and option three? Because this is definitely not going to be fixed by the time he gets there. And, um, <laughs> and is, the pressure goes up. Is it exciting then? You know, we see some movies out there and we're fascinated by a lot of these uh, Air Force military movies, White House movies, mm-hmm. presidential movies. And one of the ones I always love watching is the one with Gerard Butler is um, Olympus Has Fallen. And you mentioned in regards to the excitement of working within this environment or industry. I mean, is it like the movies or is, is it movies are just making it more so exciting that we, we jump onto that? I mean, is it, well, is it like fast paced like that? The, the fast pace is definitely there, without right, well, cool. a doubt. That mm-hmm. fast pace is up because people have to realize this is one of the few jobs where you can't say, you know what, David, we're just not having a good day today. The equipment's not working. Hey, can you call the vice president or the president and tell them to right. postpone? <laughs> I mean, it's like you are under the wire to yeah. get this thing done. And there is no, as we always call it, it's, it's a no-fail mission. It's right. like he he's like one of our mentors always tell us, hey, he's coming whether you're ready or not. So you might as well be ready. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's great to hear that because I mean we do we we as Europeans or myself as an Irishman is that I I, I grew up in a lot of these uh, movies and it does inspire mm-hmm. you. You know, I mean you watch like Top Gun and then I'm so disappointed because Maverick has been delayed twice coming out. Um, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so it's, it's supposed to be out in 2020, and it's supposed to be out next year now. Or, sorry, this year, because it's 2022. And, yeah. um, but all these movies, I mean, they're so inspiring. and it's But it's nice to hear that there is a bit of excitement um, in the job that's similar to that. So uh, if, if Tom Cruise, if you're listening, uh, please bring out um, Maverick as soon as possible. So what, yes. is your, what is one of your fondest memories that stands out? So what, what other than, I mean, you've obviously met... Um, a couple of presidents, vice president, and uh, what would be your your fondest? Tell you, the the, the fondest memory that I have to, um, two one is personal and then non personal. Okay. The non personal fondest memories, which I love this, was when we used to travel, David. If we were going to a particular city, and that was like your hometown. As long as it wasn't too complicated or too busy, um, people were able to invite their family members because a lot of times, especially if it's a public event, if the president was coming to a particular airport or the vice president, right, you can invite your family and come to the arrival. Right. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was really special. So for me, as a leader of these teams, especially on the VP side, one thing that I would do is regardless of where that person was working, I would find a way to make sure that they were working at the airport when their family was there being greeted or if they were going to meet them like on departure, but normally try to do it on arrival because the departure, you never know if he's going to be able to shake everybody's hand. But if you know that it's a place where you're definitely going to shake hands, yes, uh, being able to put, not just their family members, but then I would find a way to get that person there so they can be there too. So then that way the parents can be like, oh my gosh, David really works for the vice president. David really supports the president. (laughs) Then they see David there and they get a chance to either shake his hand. And some of them were fortunate enough 
uh, they would the photographer would take a picture and then we would find that picture and you know get it to the family or to that individual on the trip and just you know the memory of that it's one thing to say i work for the president or vice president and it's another whole thing to be in a situation where your family gets to experience it you know even if it's just at one time yes um it, it, it was just amazing for those individuals to come back to you david and say hey i know you didn't have to do that I really can't thank you enough for putting my family in that situation, even allowing me to be there. I mean, that's just a great feeling. And that's when you realize that's what I love about working for, you know, something bigger than yourself. Right. I could be selfish and always try to put myself there and take all the pictures all the time. But that's not rewarding. What's rewarding is putting the people who put in the work and allowing them to be recognized. Well, it's, it's, it must make you feel so good. I mean, you've gone beyond the call of duty to do this. You don't have to do this, but you actually do it. And it, it's it's a very nice thing and a, a, a admirable thing for you to do, because I think in today's world, not many people will do that. Um, so well, well done to you. One question before we skip on to our 30 second mm-hmm. quiz. Um, and as I mentioned before, no cheating. Um, the Did you ever meet President Obama? So I did not. I retired um, while uh, President um, Bush was in office. And then when the new administration came, that's when I was working at called the Leadership Academy. Yes. And I was teaching the job that I did supporting President and Vice President. We were actually teaching that at the Leadership Academy. So the great thing that I take pleasure in is the people that I trained they supported President Obama and President Biden and Vice wow. President Biden. And um, for me, it was great to when they would come back and they come through the academy like, hey, I just did my first trip or I just did my evaluation trip. I'm like, hey, how was it? And they would say things like it was everything you said, uh, even the little tricks of the trade that you told us that, you know, weren't really in the books or in the manuals that we had, but just some of those things that you just learn over you know, a period of time. It's like, I was able to use some of those tricks. And I remember one person told me that, because I always told them, you know, if the office opens up at eight, you get there at seven, right? Never right. get there right at eight, because you <laughs> want to be there just in case somebody has an emergency, just in case somebody needs something, Right. And uh, you always want to be at your best and at the ready. And never forget, one of the people told me that they were in the office and they got there early. And President Obama had came from jogging and was on the floor and went to, you know, just say hi to the people that were supporting him. And the person told me that, you know, the president asked them, you know, what were their names, you know, what part of the job were they doing? And and all of that, and they took a picture with them and all that good stuff. And for them to come back and say, had you not told me to show up early, I would have missed an opportunity to have a <laughs> photo op with the president. And, but he seems um, so cool, President Obama. I mean, when you when you watch him on the TV, I mean, yeah, I have a stereotype. I look at President Bush uh, Jr. And he seems kind of fun to me. And then I look at uh, uh, President Clinton, he seems very charismatic. And you look at President Obama and he seems kind of like cool and he's, he's with it. And, you know, he's kind of it, it just seems that kind of open type of person. So, no, just fascinating to know that it's um, that's pretty cool, though, isn't it? Yeah, it was awesome. And again, 
once you're a part of something that's bigger than yourself, I, I tell leaders this all the time when I do leadership training, um, regardless of how you think you felt when you were recognized, the feeling is a hundred times better when somebody that you lead gets recognized. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, that's, it's uh, well, fair play to you again. I mean, you're obviously inspiring these, uh, these guys and girls and, and they're progressing through their careers and their lives. So it's pretty, pretty amazing. Okay. Now we're going to go on to the 32nd quiz okay. of the white house. Now we asked you about this before we started recording and you promised me no cheating. So you promise no not. cheating? Oh, you'll, you'll trust me. You, you'll know. You'll know by my answer that that is definitely the case. I'll say so. Education, the purpose is I'm putting Daryl on the spot right now. So I'm going to ask him four questions within thirty seconds, and he, he, without a doubt, he's going to know the answers because I had to Google these answers. <laughs> so, okay, Daryl. I Googled them. So. Oh no, you didn't. No, don't tell. Did don't not. tell anybody that. Tell nobody. <laughs> <laughs> so the first question is going to start the clock right now. So what street is a White House on? Of the White House is actually on 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Correct. Cool. How many presidents or American presidents have lived in the White House? I would say 20. Can I go more? According to Google, I think it's more. Uh, it could be. We'll it skip that one. We'll move on. How, <laughs> how many rooms are in the White House? Oh my God. I would according to Google. According to Google. <laughs> oh man, I, I would say at least 180. Well, a little bit lower. According to Google, you could be right. They might have done some like construction work recently or you know, knocked through a few walls. But according to Google, it's 132 rooms. But that might be just oh, wow. bedrooms. Okay. I don't know really. Um, and then what is the name for the, of the president's plane? Uh, that one, one, I believe, is Air Force One because I saw the movie. You thought the movie was amazing, Harrison Ford. Well done. Yes. <laughs> You've passed. That was you did that in 27 seconds. Well done. If anybody has any corrections to make on my answers, um, please email me. Okay, Daryl. So before we go, uh, you're a master certified life coach. So it's a pretty tough time for most people around the world. Um, mm -hmm. you know, during the pandemic, and they've lost their jobs, and they probably feel a little bit lost at the moment. What what advice can you give someone who might be finding it difficult? No, I, I love this question, David, and I would share two things with um, everyone. First, uh, I would say that you need to find a way to maximize your call. Um, I always tell everybody, everybody's on this earth for a reason, whether you figure it out right away or later on, um, but there is something inside everybody that this world needs, and it's important for us to figure out what that is and then maximize that calling. Like you said, you're in aviation, right? It's important yeah. for you. Not, not that once you get to the aviation and look like I've made it, right? Then your yeah. calling should change to the point now, David, it's like, now how do you impact the lives of others that are in aviation or those who want to come behind you, yes. right? That's, that's how we make the world a little bit better. And I know sometimes people say, well, so big. It's like, well, don't try to take care of everything. Just be an influencer within your circle of influence, right? So maximizing your call, anybody that's in difficult situations. And that part of that could be, again, finding a mentor, right? Stopping yeah. long enough, right? To stop chasing uh, money or prestige or, or titles and just reflect on where you are. And again, how can you help those around you and then enjoy your life, right? I've talked to a lot of leaders where they were saying they were chasing, you know, the ladder of the ladder so much that 
they felt like they were missing time with their family. So it's like, hey, you can control that, right? Try to yes. just just pause. I know you can't just stop and things like that, but definitely put in those mechanisms, right? That can just help check you when you get a little bit too far to the right and bring you back to be centered. And then another thing I tell people too is, you know, if you're having a tough time, uh, try to get an accountability partner, right? Somebody that's not David Friend because he's in, in aviation, but he's David Friend because he cares about David. Yeah. An accountability partner can be very helpful in your life. Um, they can bring you down when you're a little bit too high. They can bring you up when you're a little bit too low. And that's the other thing I would share with somebody uh, is, you know, know that you have the opportunity to set the conditions for success. And what I mean by that, David, is some of us are not dealt, right, um, the best hand in life. It's just a fact, right? Yeah. However, after you get that hand, you get to choose which cards you're going to play. And then later on in life, which cards are you going to swap out for something a little bit better? Yes. Right. Every situation that you go into, don't look at it as what did I do to deserve this? But try to ask yourself another question of what can I learn from this? And not if, but when I get through it, what lessons can I share to, with somebody else? that may be on a similar path, because that's when you're going to find out that, you know what, that challenge that I went to, I thought it was all about me and making the wrong choices. And I did something bad and karma was coming back. And then you realize that really those situations were growing opportunities for me to either learn a little bit more about myself, learn a little bit more about my accountability partner or my network. And to realize that I'm not in this by myself. That's great advice. No, it's it's um, especially now because I mean we've heard about this great resignation, um, people leaving their jobs, especially maybe because some of them the employers that they had kind of let them go after so many years because a business mm-hmm. was was reduced. And I think people now have seen a different light that they they want to be happy. Mm-hmm. But I think it's important, as you've mentioned correctly, it's um, kind of focus on the the things that are are important to you and, and make you happy in, in, in one's life. So what about then? So I'm, I'm looking at your website here, allianceseminars.org. So firstly, mm-hmm. Daryl, what services do you provide and how can people get in touch with you? Yeah, so basically definitely have the website, allianceseminars.org. And on Facebook, um, we're Alliance Seminars Coaching. And basically, you really kind of hit it already. Um, a lot of the things that I've experienced in my life, I just felt like there is no way that, right, I was meant to leave Compton and have the life that I have working at the White House all those years and just keep it to myself. So my wife and I started Alliance Seminars Coaching, which is basically a veteran-owned faith-based organization that provides clients with coaching services, keynote speaking, and certified workshops, right? Because basically our mission is just to support clients um, by sharing strategies and skills that strengthen personal and professional relationships. And that's one thing I found, regardless of what industry you're in, regardless of where you are in your life, um, your success is definitely going to be tied to how, how well you manage personal and professional relationships. Yeah. No, I, I totally agree with that. And um, you've, you've done it. I mean, as you mentioned there, you've come from from... Compton. I've never been there myself, so I can't. I can't one hundred percent 
say how tough it was, but I'm, I'm sure mm-hmm. I'm sure it was. And uh, you've done fantastic. And I said, keep looking at your pictures here. It's just fascinating to see if you've met vice presidents and presidents and other amazing people. And that, that's just all true dedication, hard work. Um, as Daryl has mentioned, uh, his website, allianceseminars.org, I'll put in all the links when the podcast is released of how you can get in touch with uh, with Daryl. So all it's left me to say is, uh, Mr. Daryl Williams, thank you so much for your inspirational story today. And I'm sure the listeners to this will get great motivation. Thanks so much, Daryl. Thank you for having me.